0: Before we begin, a content warning. The events discussed in the Cut Short podcast are confronting and may be distressing to some listeners. If at any time you feel overwhelmed or uncomfortable, please hit pause and visit the links to support in the show notes. This episode contains references to crimes against children and may not be suitable for all listeners. Christmas Day, 1980 The weather in Surrey, British Columbia was unseasonably warm, so warm that you could wear short sleeves outside, a jarring image against the snow-capped mountains of the area. Bill Andrew thought it was the perfect afternoon to walk along the banks of the Fraser River. As he walked, his eye caught on a clump of blackberry bushes. Moving closer, he thought to himself, that's odd, someone's dumped a store dummy. But as he looked again, he stopped in his tracks. It wasn't a dummy he'd discovered. It was a body. You're listening to Cut Short, Crime Stories. The podcast that looks at the true crime stories you may know from a perspective you may not. Join us as we shine a light on the victims whose lives were cut short by crime. This is episode one. The Beast of BC, Part 1. The year was 1980. Kenny Rogers topped the charts. In Canada, the scariest thing occurring was the regular screenings of the film The Boogeyman in cinemas. Violent crime, in particular murders, had been steadily declining for over six years. There were 591 murders in Canada in 1980 and just 30 of those occurred in Vancouver, the biggest city in the province of British Columbia. Canada seemed like a pretty safe place in comparison to their neighbours south of the border. The United States hit its highest ever homicide rate that same year with over 1,800 murders in New York City alone. So Canadians had very little to worry about. This was the time where doors were left unlocked, where children played on the street, and as long as they came home for dinner, no questions were asked. That's how it was for 12-year-old Christine Weller. That's not to say she was always home for dinner though. Christine's parents often fought in front of her, their arguments fueled by her father's drinking and turning ugly when he laid his hands on her mother. Once, when the fighting got particularly bad, Christine had run away. She was missing for three days before eventually turning up, afraid of what her father would say. Christine had grown up as a military brat, moving across the country for her father's work as an army cook. She'd learned to be standoffish and to fend for herself, a defense mechanism of sorts. She learned there was no point getting close to anyone. Whenever she felt like she was finally making friends, her father would uproot their family once again and she'd have to start all over again in the next town. She didn't try anymore. When Christine and her family moved to Surrey, a suburb of Metro Vancouver, things were about as bad as they could get. Christine's father, Richard Weller, no longer had a steady job. Her mother had left him and there wasn't steady money coming in anymore. Christine lived with her father and grandmother in a motel room at the Bonanza Motel. The other kids at AHP Matthew Public School didn't like Christine much. She talked back in class, had a rough mouth, and her clothes smelled. They didn't know that money was tight in Christine's house, and that she often went to school unwashed and unfed. There was one kid in the class who didn't seem so bad. Clive Walker had been one of the only ones who'd shown any interest in Christine, and he was nice to her. So nice that he'd even agreed to lend Christine his bike, though just for a day. She had to return it before Clive's dad got back from a work trip. It was this bike that Christine rode to the Surrey Inn with her father after school on Monday, the 17th of November, 1980. It had been Richard's birthday a few days before, and he'd been restless inside the motel without regular work. He'd decided to go for a beer, which, Christine knew, would be several beers over several hours. She decided to go with him to the inn as an excuse to ride the bike. Outside, Richard kissed Christine goodbye and made her promise that she'd ride her bike straight home. It was just before 6 p.m. and a light rain had begun to fall. Christine rode her bike in circles for a few minutes before taking off down the King George Highway. On Thursday morning, Clive Walker finally fronted his father about his missing bike. Christine had promised to return it to Clive on Tuesday morning, but she hadn't shown up to school that day. Or the next. Everyone at school knew Chrissy stole things. Her family was poor. Clive didn't dare tell his dad about that. But Alex Walker was not about to let his son get out of this one. Clive tried to visit Christine's unit at the Bonanza Motel, but got no answer after knocking at the door. Alex went with his son the following Monday, November 24th, to get this bike back once and for all. Christine's grandmother opened the door. No, she hadn't seen Christine for a few days. No, she wasn't worried. Christine had run away before after all and turned up after a few days. But she seemed surprised when she learned that Christine hadn't been at school either. Frustrated, Alex Walker called the police himself to report his son's bike and Christine Weller missing. Christine's grandmother also spoke to police though downplayed her concerns for her granddaughter's whereabouts. It had been nine days since anyone had seen the 12-year-old. Christine was known to the local authorities as a runaway, and they didn't seem too phased by the news that she was missing again. On average, ten kids a day were reported missing in the area. No one really did anything about it. Alex Walker was just annoyed about his son's bike. Days passed, then weeks. There was no sign of Christine or the bike. Christine's father woke up on Christmas morning, hoping to hear his daughter stirring, excited for the day's festivities, but her bed remained empty. The weather that day was unseasonably warm, so warm that you could wear short sleeves outside, a jarring image against the snow-capped mountains of the area. Bill Andrew thought it was the perfect afternoon to walk along the banks of the Fraser River that winds over 850 miles from the Jasper National Park all the way to Richmond, passing through Surrey and providing ample walking trails for locals. As Bill Andrew walked, his eye caught on a clump of blackberry bushes. As he got closer, he thought to himself, that's odd. Somebody's dumped a store dummy. But as he looked again, he stopped in his tracks. It wasn't a dummy he'd discovered. It was the body of Christine Weller. To say Bill Andrew had made a horrifying discovery would be to put it mildly. Christine had been stabbed ten times and her throat was cut. There was also evidence she'd been strangled and sexually assaulted. She had been just 12 years old when she died. Local media jumped on the story, finally forcing police to accept that Christine Weller wasn't just a runaway. She'd met with foul play. Their attention quickly fell to her alcoholic, violent father. Police tracked down Richard's estranged wife, Marie Weller. While Marie acknowledged that her husband was regularly violent towards her, she was firm that it was a rare occasion that he'd laid a hand on his children. Christine had been the closest to him of anyone in the family, she said. While the police continued to focus on Richard Weller, along with another person of interest living at the Bonanza Motel where the Wellers were staying, the investigation soon fizzled. Media reports mentioned that the bike Christine had been riding that day was yet to be recovered. A local man came forward to say that he'd found a bike matching that description, leaning outside the animal clinic that he operated. He'd waited for someone to collect the bike and stored it in his garage when no one did. The police had no solid leads and no real evidence in Christine Weller's homicide investigation but Clive Walker had his bike back. By April, interest in Christine Weller's shockingly violent murder had faded. Nothing had come of the investigation and being murdered was the last of most kids' worries. Thirteen-year-old Colleen Daneau spent most of her time on the streets or with friends. The shy teenager lived with her grandmother. Her dad lived in Regina an 18 hour drive away. No one knew where Colleen's mother was. Colleen was a trusting girl, verging on naive. She was conscientious in school, and while her home life was less than ideal, she was happy. So when Colleen left her friend Sandra's house on April 15th, traveling by skateboard as she usually did, there was no reason for her not to arrive back home but Colleen would never be seen alive again. When reporting her granddaughter is missing to police six days later, Colleen's grandmother was asked why she hadn't come forward any sooner. I thought she was at her friend's place, the woman replied. Despite Colleen's grandmother and friends insisting that she wasn't the type to run away, police weren't sure. They contacted her father in Regina who said it was possible Colleen could have run away. He wasn't sure. Other relatives speculated the teenager was heading for Regina, never having fully come to terms with her parents' separation. When police tracked down and spoke to Colleen's mother, she also didn't know where her daughter could be. And so, Colleen was added to the list of 300 missing persons cases that the Vancouver police had received that month and would struggle to solve. With no clues to her whereabouts, and no reason to suspect foul play, there was little more to be done. Thoughts of Colleen Daigneault, like Christine Weller before her, soon faded into the background. Shirking on his mother's ski jacket, Darren Johnsrude headed out into the crisp Coquitlam air on the morning of April 15th, the same day that Colleen Daigneault was reported missing. He was going to buy cigarettes. The 16-year-old didn't live in the Vancouver suburb. He was just visiting his mother and stepfather for the Easter break, and he was pissed off about it. Darren didn't get along with his mother's new husband. She'd met Gary Rosenfelt in a rehabilitation program for alcoholics five years earlier, and the pair eventually married. Darren had two younger siblings who both lived with a couple. Darren was the only one of the Johnsrud children to stay with his father in Saskatoon. So it was no surprise then, that Darren was feeling less than jovial when he arrived in Coquitlam a few days earlier. The teen had a tendency to be surly and standoffish, and had either ignored his family's attempts to reach out to him, or lashed out with aggression. With his stepfather taking on the role of disciplinarian in the household, and Darren refusing to play happy families, it seemed inevitable that tensions would boil over. Darren had run away before, in 1978. He'd spent three weeks living on the Skid Row in the city of Edmonton, after being sent home from a school trip for using drugs. That incident had been the final straw and was the reason why Darren was living with his dad. His stepfather wouldn't tolerate that kind of behavior under his roof, but spending the Easter of 1981 together was Gary Rosenfeld's way of testing the waters to reunite the family for good. It was not going well. But even so, when Darren didn't return from his cigarette run, the Rosenfelts were immediately worried. When he didn't turn up, we didn't know what to do, recalled Darren's mother, Sharon. We thought Darren might have gotten lost. His cousin and aunt had made a special trip to see the teen that afternoon, and he'd been looking forward to it. It wouldn't have made sense for him to just up and leave. Hours passed. When it reached twilight and there was still no sign of Darren, the rosenfels called the police. Like Christine Weller and Colleen Daigneault, Darren was immediately pegged as a runaway. Initially the police didn't even take the boy's name. It would be two days before police conceded and took down Darren's description. As much as Gary Rosenfeld hadn't gotten along with his stepson, he was worried sick about Darren. Pretending to go off to work each morning as usual, Gary was actually out looking for Darren. He spent hours watching kids come and go from the Granville Street area of downtown Vancouver, a local hotspot for runaways and street kids. He anxiously searched their faces, praying he'd recognise his stepson amongst the thousands of kids who frequented the area. After more than two weeks had passed, and with no news from police, the Rosenfelds got a call. They'd found a body. It wasn't Darren, though, police assured them. It was just routine for them to check all missing kids, and there were 70 youths unaccounted for in the area at the time. The body had been found by two men outworking their dogs. When one of the retrievers became interested in something by the river, they went to investigate. They were horrified to discover the body of a boy slumped over a tree stump. His face had decomposed beyond recognition. The Rosenfelds felt uneasy, but took the police at their word. Gary and Sharon felt confident enough to attend a four-day Alcoholics Anonymous convention together in Nevada. But Sharon felt uneasy the whole time they were away. On May 11th, nine days after the body had been discovered, the Rosenfelts returned home. That same day, a positive identification was made using dental records. Sharon's worst fears were confirmed when the phone rang. Mrs Rosenfeld, I'm sorry, I guess it was your boy after all, said the voice on the other end of the line. Sharon screamed. Darren had been killed by several blows to the head. The investigation initially focused on Gary Rosenfeld, whose tumultuous relationship with the victim put him on the police's radar but it quickly became apparent that he was not a serious suspect. Another theory that Darren had befriended and fallen victim to a local homosexual pervert also seemed unlikely. After all, the boy had only been in Vancouver for a couple of days. No one thought to link the murder with that of the 12-year-old Surrey girl who'd been found months earlier she had been stabbed, Darren had been killed with a blunt object. The two children were of different genders. Serial killers overwhelmingly preferred to kill one gender over the other. Colleen Daigneau's disappearance didn't seem relevant at all. But all three children were horrifically linked in a way that would become appallingly clear to investigators in just a few short months. Before then, Another eight children would join Christine Weller, Colleen Daneu and Darren Johnsrude in death, their lives cut short by a monster stalking the streets of Vancouver. A monster who'd come to be known as the Beast of British Columbia.